0: This is a recording of a Bible study given at the Chapel of the Opened Book under the covering title of the Pleroma or the Fullness and is number five of the series dealing with the book of Exodus and the particular subject is the Tabernacle and the Ark and Mercy Seat. Those of you who are listening to this recording may care to join with us in the reading of Scripture and if so You might switch off for a moment or two while we read together Isaiah chapter 53 and 54. It may not be very obvious at the first reading what connection there is between Isaiah 53 and the passage we're going to consider. But I hope that the time we've got through we shall see there is a very vital one. In our examination of the book of Exodus, we suggested that it fell into two parts. The first that led the people out, and the second that led the people in. And two words are found in the New Testament which seem to give uh, colour to that thought. On the Mount of Transfiguration, according to Luke's record, they spake of the decease which Christ was to accomplish at Jerusalem. And that word decease is the word exodus, he was going to lead an exodus, and he was the Passover lamb. Then in the epistle to the Hebrews, it speaks about the boldness of entrance that we have, and that is the word Isodus. And you need not be a Greek scholar to know that exodus means out, and obviously exodus means in. And very often, a preaching of the gospel is very, very true and very, very sound in emphasizing the way out. And then the preacher seems to turn around and leave those who have been redeemed and converted on the shores of the Red Sea and says, Well, so long. I hope you have a good journey. But that isn't what God said. He gave them Moses as their leader. He gave them a pattern for Moses to copy. And he was careful that they should have an access into his presence as well as a deliverance from evil. And without straining the point too much, we could write over the first part of Exodus, redemption, and the second part of Exodus, atonement. The one is the basis of our salvation, and the other the ground of our acceptance. Although sometimes these merge a little, and we'd have to be careful. Then we noticed, starting with Exodus 25 last week, that the Lord commanded that they should connect together all sorts of material to make this tabernacle but a stress is put upon the fact that it was to be given willingly. In contrast, with the early chapters of Exodus, they had to build, or they had to make, or provide material for building, and that wasn't precious stones, or blue and purple and scarlet, but it was clay and brick without straw, and they were bondmen. men. Oh, what a difference between building for God, and building for the pharaohs of this world. What a difference between one aspect of service and another. And then, last week, oh, then further we emphasized, two things come together in this Exodus 25. The Lord said, Let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. We mustn't forget the word dwell, for well, that's precious, but we mustn't forget the word sanctuary. For that's precious. It wasn't merely a dwelling place. It was a holy dwelling place. And we've got the two things before us. The wonder of it, that God should ever want to dwell with any of us. And the awful fact that our God is a consuming fire. It'll only be dangerous if you're not clothed with the asbestos clothing which God provides. But a consuming fire he must be, by his very nature. So instead of the dwelling with his people, bringing about a holy familiarity, his presence was ringed round and round and round with prohibitions and veils and curtains in order if it were possible by the invisible things to help that people to understand a little bit of what was meant by holiness a very, very difficult subject to deal with at any time. And when you think of that number of people coming out from their bondage and misery of Egypt to be taught what the word holiness meant, well, you can understand the need there was for types and shadows and figures and examples. Well, last week, we considered the general composition or layout of the tabernacle. We looked at the outer court which... Separated it from the rest of the camp. We discovered that it has only got one gate. Of course, that's unfortunate for some people. They'd like to have any and outer gates, back doors as well as front doors. But our Savior has given us a hint that those who climb up some other way are not in the line of truth. There's only one way into this enclosure, and that is by the gate. And that gate is barred. You cannot go straight in, blundering in you're immediately in front of a very large, rather awful-looking structure covered with brass plates, and that is the altar of sacrifice. Anyone who attempts to approach, uh, approach God and bypass the sufferings and death of the Son of God is practically committing moral suicide. I am the way. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Well, all those things, blessed be God, we believe. Otherwise, I don't think you'd be here this evening. And now we're going to just add a little bit more to our understanding and proceed to the way in which this um, tabernacle was erected and concentrate our attention particularly on one article of the sacred furniture. At the top of this chart, or toward the top of this chart, it is just suggested, without being in true scale, the outside line represents the linen sheets that were making the court right the way round. Inside, we, uh, at that end, we have the gate. The square represents the brazen altar. The circle in the square represents the laver for washing. And then we have the entrance into the holy place itself, then a veil, and the holiest of all, which was a perfect cube, and into that holiest of all, nobody went except the high priest. Once a year, and then not without blood. That was the very centre. All the rest of it was leading up to that. It's interesting to note this, especially if you are concerned about the symbols of the purpose of God. We've already given a consideration of the meaning of the cherubim, how they figure at the gate of paradise. And you remember he calls to tabernacle the cherubim, And I suggested that when our parents were exiled from the presence of God, and they turned round and saw that curious, symbolic creature, a lion, an ox, a man, an eagle, one or the other may have said, and I gave credit to Eve this time, why, I don't know, I said, Eve may have said to Adam, Adam, do you know what that means? He says, no, I'm I'm trying to puzzle out what it does mean. She says that represents you and the dominion that was put under you that you've lost. But he was given dominion over the beast of the field, the cattle, the fowl of the air, man, lion, ox, eagle. There it was being kept. And then of course we could travel down the ages and we come to the book of the Revelation. And there the four living creatures with the very self-same fourfold division are oh, there giving glory to God because the hour is come and then paradise is restored. Way to the tree of life is given once more as it was said in the beginning. What well, inside this tabernacle on that ark were golden cherubim. But before ever you got inside, you would have them exhibited before your eye by the fact that the tribes weren't allowed to just pick and choose where they liked to settle. Everything was this, was according to a pattern shown to Moses in the mount. And so, by looking at the first, the second chapter of the book of Numbers, we read that each one of these tribes, and each one of them are given a name, were to pitch their tent according to their own standard. And if you will notice those which are in a uh, uh, distributed round, we discover that Judah. Now, uh, where Judah is, at the that entrance where the gate is, Judah. He had a lion for his standard. And Ephraim, at this other end, he had an ox, the bull. And Reuben, he's down here, had the man and Dan on the opposite side and the eagle. You say, where do you get all that from? Well, we get that from the notes in the rabbinical writings. And if you say, I don't believe it, so well, you might not believe 1066 William the Conqueror. Uh, but most of us do, although we could never go and put our finger on the actual document, perhaps we wouldn't know where to find it. And so there's every reason to believe that there was this symbol outside in the care of the cherubim and its meaning that we see right inside carrying the story on until it reaches its fulfilment in the day that's yet to come. Well now that's enough for that. The central feature which we're going to consider this evening is the ark. By the way, if you like to go into uh, other features about the disposition of these round the uh, outside, you'll find that there was a very solemn statement made with regard to any attempt to transgress and interfere with the special service committed to somebody else. The Levites particularly were given the charge of carrying the curtains or carrying the ark or whatnot, and anybody else who stepped in. It was punishable by death. So this is not really an accident. All a part of a plan. Now when we come to the 25th chapter of Exodus, we read in verse 10, oh after it says in verse uh, 9, According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall he make it. And you remember, in the New Testament, we are definitely told that Christ has not entered into holy places made by hands, which are a figure of the true, but into heaven itself, the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not made. And then in the book of the Revelation, heaven was opened, and I saw the ark of the testimony. Now, if you're going to pin me down to it and say, do you mean to tell me that up there in heaven there's a wooden box covered with, uh, covered with gold? I should say, well, possibly not. But whatever is the reality of which that is a type and symbol, that's there. You see, we, we could be very clever people. We can ridicule the idea that there are white horses in heaven. Yes, and that could explain away the second coming of Christ. Perhaps. So far as we can begin to see, real horses are not the ones that are down here on earth. the real ones are the spiritual realities out there of which these are poor passing kites it's the other way around, but we'll leave that for the time being. So the very instruments were a part of the pattern and the first one to be mentioned is the last one that would be met because God works always from the from within out. We have to go the other way and come. To the gate first. To the altar of sacrifice next. To the labor of washing next. To the land, to the showbread. And so on. All oh, a long time before we get. But God says no. Everything that's planned is destined to lean to this one thing. And if this is never achieved, all the rest is waste of material and waste of time. So he says, thou should make an ark. A shitty wood you'll find that there are, I think, seven trees that are mentioned in the Old Testament that are used largely for beautifying the house of God's sanctuary. And this is one of them. But this one is not the one that's picked out for very much beauty. It was a very plain wood, apparently. I don't mean to say it was what we call the plain tree. I didn't mean that. But it had no particular uh, appeal except that it was useful. As Isaiah 53 says, when they saw him, there was no beauty in him that they should desire him. When he sat thus on a well weary, a Samaritan woman said, how is it that you being a Jew? That's all. She wasn't rude. She was speaking what she thought was true. They looked him up and down and said, thou oh, art not fifty years old and hast thou seen Abraham. And he wasn't anywhere near fifty. His visage was more mild than it had been Just common wood. But, ah, there's something about it which we want to remember. This, in the Septuagint, Greek version, I don't think anybody could come to these meetings long without realising that, so far as I'm concerned, that Greek version is an exceedingly valuable help in the interpretation of Scripture. The translation that they give, have I put it there, Down here, in green letters, xylon, acepton Now, you know both those words. It's surprising how much you know. You know when the man is advertised on the wireless to play a xylophone, he's going to have all this business, you know, with bits of wood. Wood, that's the word cylon, wood. And the word a is something which is not septic. In other words, not corruptible. So the wood that God chose, May have been plain. But what a picture of that humanity of Christ who did no sin. Who knew no sin. Who was holy, harmless, undefiled and separate from sinners. So it was aseptic. It was not septic. It was not corruptible. But that's not all. If you stop there, you're emphasising the sinless humanity of Christ. That if he was only man, we're still without a Redeemer. But the Old Testament has emphasised that the king's man, redeemer, is even the God who created heaven and earth, the Lord of Sabaoth. And so we have the gold, which is the symbol of deity, the glory, covering. The wood was only there to hold and support the other. They were together, as we see in the New Testament. Where are we going to draw the line when we speak of Christ? I don't think we are supposed to. He speaks as man, but he speaks as God manifest in the flesh. Over and over again they interchange. Whoever has ever heard of a man standing in a cemetery before a closed tomb and before he does anything to show his power, standing there and saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Fancy that. So we have the wood and the gold. The first chapter of Romans, it speaks of the gospel of God concerning his son, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, but declared to be the son of God with power by the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Now, if you're speaking of an ordinary man, you wouldn't say, oh, according to the flesh, he was a descendant of so-and-so. What do you say? Well, however else could he have come? Is there anybody here who would be very upset if we said, oh, according to the flesh you were descended from Richard III or something? You can't be descended in any other way. But this one was according to the flesh of the tribe of Judah. Says so. But according to the spirit was another point of view. And so we have on the first page of the New Testament, his name is Jesus but his name also is Emmanuel, for he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy concerning his birth and the nature of it. Well now this ark is given specified size, two cubits and a half should be the length thereof, a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, a cubit and a half the height thereof. I think you'll discover that when we come to look at other parts that the um, table of showbread. Corresponded in some measure, not in entirely but in some measure. There was something on a level with these that were out and inside one corresponding with the other, but we've got enough, I think, this evening to keep to this one great symbol. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Not really gold. They didn't have the method of stamping gold in those days as we do with so many carat gold. But it does speak Over and over again in the scriptures, fine gold and pure gold, and so it is here. And of course, we have heard do you know what gold looks like, friends? It's that shiny stuff that's got a yellow tinge about it, you know. And I was passing the shop down here, and it says they're now giving 58 shillings and thruppence for a golden sovereign. So that tells you where we're getting. But if you have virgin gold, it's very difficult to keep it in its true shape because it's so very soft and pliable. And that's what they use, pure virgin gold, to represent the two natures of this one Redeemer. Well now he goes on to say And thou shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. when well, it could have said an edge of gold or a fillet of gold or something, but it says a crown. Oh don't let's rob him friends. There's too many who want to take the crown from off his head or that they do want to postpone it until he comes a second time when they can't help themselves. But don't we rejoice even now in the day of his re- reproach sometimes to sing that hymn, crown him, Lord of all. Yes. And where should we look for a crown that is more wonderful than the cr- crown in connection with this? Some crowns indicate a tyrant. And you know the word despot is used of Christ? When he comes a second time, he'll show who is that only, that blessed and only potentate, a despot, king of kings, lord of lords, to rule with a rod of iron. Oh yes. But oh, what a thought here. Here we have a crown associated with unspeakable mercy. And so we have the symbolism being carried forward. But thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other. And so we have all the arrangements made that it should be transported from place to place without any violation of its sanctity. No hand laid upon it. You remember that one man forfeited his life because he put out his hand to stay the Ark of God. Oh, it sounds so... Terrible from our point of view, but there it was. There was provision made to transport it, and that must be strictly observed. God is hedging about the sacredness of this ark, so that we, or those people at that time particularly, should appreciate their dealing with a God of holiness. And then, not only so, it says, thou shalt make staves of shitting wood, and overlay them with gold, and thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the side of the ark, that the ark may be bored with them, and the staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. Never. All this is to emphasize, as we said, the sacredness of this trust. Well now, so far, we've got a very wonderful chest, or ark. But there must be something more. And we discover that there must be something in it, and there must be something on it before it completes its picture. Friends, even though we prove that Christ was sinless, even though we prove that the sinless Christ was in some mysterious way God manifested the flesh, you're still without a Redeemer. In fact, the more you emphasize the sinlessness of Christ without his redeeming love, the more you bring about your own condemnation. In contrast, he doesn't ask you to patronise him and say how good he was, how right he was. No. And this arc is only the beginning of the story. It's there, but there must be something more. Now, first of all, what is sin? Well, we can get many definitions, but one of them in the scripture says, sin is the transgression of the law, and that would be particularly impressed upon the people of Israel. Sin is the transgression of the law, so the symbol of righteousness would also be very acceptable to them. Sin is the honoring and the uh, righteousness, rather, is the honoring and the obedience of the law. Whenever well, we are told in Hebrews chapter nine that in this ark there were placed three things. The tables of stone, air rod that budded, and a golden pot that contained manna. Those three things. We are told, I think it is in the, um, this book of Exodus itself, I think it's the 16th chapter, when the manna was given to them, that they were to put that into the ark. I, I don't remember the verse itself. But it is somewhere here. Oh, I think it is in verse 33. And Moses said unto Aaron, take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And then you remember, there was another test later on when some of the leaders of the tribes of Israel began to challenge the peculiar sacredness of the family of Aaron. And they put forth another argument that you can hear. They said, all the people of Israel are holy. We're all in it. Well, that's true, friends. That's true. But within that election, God could still choose whether you do this or you do that. And that had to be settled. Oh, it was settled in a drastic way. The first occurrence of an earthquake in the Scriptures I don't say the first occurrence of an earthquake at all, but in in the record was when the earth opened and swallowed up those men who dared to question the sacredness of the priesthood. And then, God, to demonstrate to them his choice, he said, you all bring your staff, each one of you the ancestral staff, and lay it up before the Lord. And in the next next day when they went, eleven of them, just dead sticks. And one of them budded and blossomed and bore fruit. That was Aaron's. That's a miracle. But it emphasised at once the living priesthood, of which Aaron was only a poor figure. So that was put in the ark. A priesthood. What was the matter? Oh, very blessed thought that God is not only thinking, or can I say it reverently, of himself. You see, the tables of stone, you might say, oh, well, well, God was particular about the fact that they broke broken it and this must be observed. But don't you see he put the other side in too? That he was a father that pitied his children and in their wilderness wanderings he wanted them ever to remember that he fed them with bread from heaven. So sometimes we have to remember that lest we think that it's all one-sided. Well now with regard to the the uh, unbroken tables of stone. Would you look at, um, first of all make sure, verse 16, and thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. Now it hadn't been given after that moment. He was to put into the ark the testimony that was given to him. Now will you look at chapter 32. 19. Or a little bit earlier. Verse 15. And Moses turned and went down from the mount, And the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both of their sides. On the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And when he saw what was happening at the foot of the mountain, they'd already broken this commandment. The very first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods beside me, thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image. And look at them. So before ever Moses could give them the Ten Commandments they were already broken. And he broke them. And so we, we read in verse 19 And he came to pass as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, and he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands, and brake them beneath the mount. Strictly speaking friends, Strictly speaking, the people of Israel never received the tables of stone as a covenant. Never. They were broken before they could be delivered to them. They stood there and they said, All of the Lord has spoken, we will do. And before ever they could get them back again, they showed how utterly impossible it was for Israel or any man to enter into a covenant to keep something for life, righteousness or peace. It never could be. What was the answer to it? Well, Moses went back. Chapter 34. Verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, View thee two tables of stone like unto the first. Here it comes again. The second time. Oh, how many times that comes. Like unto the first. And what condescension on the part of God. And I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables, which thou breakest. Have you ever had the misery of writing page after page, and then either lost the lot or found somebody and used it for lighting a fire? And do you, would you imagine that, say for instance, I, who am speaking to you, I would be as classy over it and as gentle over it. Oh dear, oh dear. I always remember the agony of words that Carlisle describes his feelings. He said, the complete manuscript of the French Revolution to a titled friend of his and the titled friend of his left it all on the table in his sitting room and then the maid whose one idea was to make the house clean, not the place to live in, she saw all this paper, scrambled it all up, put it on the fire, cleaned the room and away went Carlisle's life's work and he had to sit down and start and write it all over again but he said the fire had gone out of it well, think of God. Think of God. He'd written those tables of stone. He gave them into his hand and they a broken and not a word he rebu- had rebuked. Isn't it wonderful? And he'd be ready in the morning. So, in, in in a sense, we could say this. That Israel never received the state tables of stone. What God said the second time was, Moses, make an ark and put them in there. In other words, Wait for Christ. He's the only one who will honour that law make it acceptable. And you've got to wait on him. So there it is. And in verse 28 of this uh, same, I've not given you that verse which I ought to, verse 28, it says, um, And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, and did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the ten commandments. Solemn statement there, 40 days and 40 nights in that holy presence. Well, there's the feature that has to do with the ark itself. Well now, it was not complete. After all said and done, that ark and that chest was to contain something within it in order to sustain something upon it. First of all, Christ himself must manifestly be righteous, for he could never be our Saviour otherwise. But we are not saved because he happened to be righteous. We are saved, or we have access into the presence of God, because he, the Righteous One, bore our sins in his own body, shed his blood, so that God might be just, and the justifier of him that believed in Jesus. So we go back to Exodus 25, And we make another consideration. Verse 17, and thou shalt make a mercy seat, a pure gold. A mercy seat. And this is so translated in the New Testament in the epistle to the Hebrews. But you might like to know there's another passage where the word mercy seat is not translated mercy seat, but comes in Romans the third chapter. And in order to see the context is parallel with the thought of the broken law and the unbroken law and the ark and the mercy seat we'll read verse 19 Romans 3 Now we know that what things soever the law saith it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, something's happened. Something has happened to illuminate certain things in the scriptures. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested. It's been manifested. And it's being witnessed by the law and the prophets, when you get to know it. They are all talking about it too, where might you know. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. Unto all, I wonder whether there's a distinction here. Unto all and upon all. Does that mean exactly the same? It may not. It's offered to all. It's upon all them that believe. It's unto all without discrimination now. For all have sinned. But whether all will accept it is another question. So, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Paul was a Hebrew, not a Gentile. And he spoke the Hebrew tongue as we read. And he knew that the basic word for sin in the Old Testament is the word to come short. The classic example is found in the book of Judges, when so many men of the tribe of Benjamin could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. And they do it with the left hand, it said, Not miss. That word, miss, is the Hebrew word for sin. They miss the mark. So he said, all have missed the mark. All have come short. You see, that's a searching word. Our favourite idea of describing sin is murder and theft and I don't know what. And that lets some of us out because or externally at least, I suppose we haven't cut anybody's throat or done something like that, so we're fairly respectable sinners, you see. But this is not it. Really, this doesn't bother about whether you're respectable or not. You're just are not 100%, friends. You may be 99%, but if you are, that doesn't get through, friends. You see, in the Old Testament, the symbol of righteousness is a just weight and a just balance. In other words, when people murmur and complain about the awful character, the savage character of God, you know, they very often speak about him as Yahweh, those people. They like to pronounce his name like that. The savage, bloodthirsty Yahweh, they say in the Old Testament. Are you imagine God. Oh, we couldn't think of worshipping a God who said, an eye for an eye. No? Couldn't you? I'd like to be in the shop when you're having your joint of meat weighed for the next time. And you wouldn't think it was a very savage thing to say to the butcher. Anyway, minute, 16 ounces to the pound, don't forget. That's an eye for an eye. That's perfect balance. If you're looking in the law to find mercy, you're looking at the wrong place. Don't look in the ark for mercy. Look at the lid on the top of it that rests upon a law that's been honoured. See? Well, that's where we're coming then. But if I go on talking like this, I shall turn away and then I shall forget the word I'm about to tell you. So I'll bring myself back. We're going to try to find this word mercy seat in Romans 3. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that's the bit that's brought us out from our Egypt, whom God has set forth to be a mercy seat through faith in his blood. That's the other side. That propitiation is the word used in the Old Testament for the mercy seat. The two aspects of the work of Christ. The Passover that brought you out. The mercy seat sprinkled with the blood of atonement once a year that leads you in and gives you the possible access and acceptance. Well, now I'm going to turn away for a moment because occasionally it does us good to be warned that as sure as God introduces something which is a picture of the work of his beloved son, you'll find that Satan will get busy to try to get a travesty of it. So, don't think we're wasting time to turn aside for a moment and see something which seems to be an obvious parody with dreadful consequences. And I'm going to ask you to turn to the prophet Zechariah. That is one of the minor prophets near the end of the Old Testament, just in case somebody is not quite no-favor of the books. <laughs> the prophet Zechariah in Ireland, the fifth chapter. Now I want to read that chapter, it's only eleven verses, it'll only take a few minutes. Then I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked to behold a flying roll. And he said unto me, What seest thou? And I answered, I, I see a flying roll. The length thereof is twenty cubits, and the breadth thereof ten cubits. Then said he unto me, This is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. For every one that stealeth shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and every one that sweareth shall be cut off as on that side according to it. We'll come back to this again in a moment. I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief. And into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house, and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. Then the angel that talked with me went forth, and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes, and see what is this that goeth forth. And I said, What is it? He said, This is an ephire that goeth forth. He said, Moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. But behold there was lifted up a talent of lead. And this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. And he said, This is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. Then I lifted up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, there came out two women. And the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. Then I, said I to the angel that talked with me, Whither do these bear the ephah? He said unto me, to build it in house in the land of Shina. It shall be established and set there upon her own base. Well now, to seriously explain that would take much longer time than the few minutes I want to devote to it. But I think the sheer reading of it will make you feel here we have an ephah, that's a measure, a measure of commerce, it's got a lid of lead in contrast to the lid of gold. It's got wings of a stork which is an unclean animal or unclean bird or animals, alright friends, but bird uh, instead of the cherubim. And it's got this statement about the role which is very important. And it's going back to Babylon to its own place. Would you look at verse 3 again? It says... For everyone that steals shall be cut off as on this side and everyone that swears it should be cut off as on that side. In the prophet Jeremiah I'll just turn to it don't bother because by the time you get it I shall be back again. 25, 29, For now I begin, begin to bring evil on the city which is called by my name and should ye be unpunished ye shall not be unpunished. That is the word translated cut off. It's not the ordinary word cut off. And the statement in Zechariah is that this role, instead of saying it's wrong to steal, says, you won't be punished. Why, I've heard the thing, haven't you? And we camouflage our morals by words. But of course you're such... Polite people shielded from the things of this world. You've never heard the word scrounge, have you? You've never heard a person winning something, have you? And that's only a camouflage for stealing. And that's what's happening all over the world. Bringing things down. In contrast to the witness of God. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not shalt not bear false witness. And this is going throughout the earth and says, oh, let him off according to that side of it. Let him off according to that side of it. Just the utter contrast. Well, that was only just thrown in to show you that we must watch all the movements that God does will nearly always be travested and parodied by the movements of Satan. Well, now we come to the um, mercy seat a little bit more carefully. Chapter 25 of Exodus, once more. Thou shalt make a mercy seat, a pure gold, two cubits and a half, should be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, exactly the size of the ark. No bigger, no smaller. There's a lesser. Of course, obviously, a lid would fit, but it's specified that there's a relationship between the obedience and the righteousness which is there, honoring God's word and law, and the salvation which is given freely to those who are blessed under its terms. They, they go together. And Romans, the fifth chapter, can be read over and over again by one obedience, an obedience that led to death certainly, but rather an obedience. He brings justification to those who by the disobedience of one were constituted sinners. It says in verse eighteen, "Thou shalt make two cherubim of gold." of beaten work shalt thou make them, in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of, margin, even of the matter of the mercy seat. The cherubim, whatever they stand for, are made in, of exactly the same material as the mercy seat. Surely that stabs the cherubim with the thought of redemption and reconciliation. And then the next thing is, And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And this, I often tell is a wonderful picture of the secret of Christian unity. You know, old Euclid, he said something like this, things which are, you know Euclid, don't you? The boy said he was the wife of algebra all the other way around, but he got through with it somehow. But he said, things which are equal to the same thing are equal to one another. Now, our tendency is to be chasing everybody about to make them think like we think. But if we were to chase everybody about and make us all think like Christ thought, we'd wake up to the fact that we're all thinking alike, wouldn't we? The more we look to Christ, the more we shall be like one another. So these cherubim, (coughs) it says their faces shall look to one another toward the mercy seat. Two statements, not one. Shall the faces of the cherubim be. Now, what's all this for? That's a legitimate question, isn't it? Why this elaboration? Why this chest? Why this piece on the top? What's it all for? Now God is going to tell us. And there I will meet with thee. And I will commune with thee. From above the mercy seat. I will meet with thee. Now this word is a deep word. It doesn't mean a casual meeting. It means a meeting with an express basis. And this word supplies us with the thought of reconciliation. It's incipient in the word atonement. As you know, the old English word atonement used to be pronounced at one And there used to be a verb to at-one anybody, but nobody uses it today. it's gone. But at one and reconciliation are the same word, one body from the Latin, one from the Saxon, as far as I know. I mean the same thing. The atoning work of Christ in the Old Testament has brought about the at one of the New Testament. And that's incipient in this word, there will I meet. Don't forget the word there, will you? I think it comes. Yes. And there, I will meet with you. Don't believe. just slip over the word there and not see it. Put yourself into another position. Elijah has fled. And he's there alone. And God said, you go to the book Kerry, there have I commanded the ravens to feed you. But he wasn't given an option. He said, well, I don't like that place. I'll go somewhere else. Well, if you did, the ravens will go there. There. Or in the New Testament. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Bond nor free, male or female. There. It's a word that means a place. So God says to you and to me, there will I meet with you. But if you're going to pick a choose and say, oh, I don't, I don't quite like that idea. In fact, I don't believe that we should ever insist upon the shedding of blood. God is too merciful and kind for that. Well, we may wake up one day to find we made a mistake, a dreadful one. He says, there will I meet with thee. Me. There's one passage that I like to turn to, that's in the minor prophet. I'll just read it. It's in the prophet Amos. And he says in chapter 3, verse 3, these words. Can two walk together, except they be agreed? Well, that walking together means harmony. Can two walk together? Not strictly speaking, if they're not reconciled, if they've got anything between them that's making the difference. They may be walking physically along, but I've seen people walking together, haven't you? They're miles apart in spirit. That's one word. But this, this, this word agreed is the very word used in Exodus. There will I meet with you. So it's deeper. Can two walk together, except they have met? Well, obviously no. And I've told you, of course, a little bit of my early history. I'll tell you again, I don't mind. When I was very young, or I don't know how long ago that must be, I sort of rather diffidently, with a certain amount of trepidation, I hadn't had a lot of experience, mark you. I was a little innocent. I arranged to meet a certain young lady and we were going to meet at the park gates. Well, I, I was waiting at one park gate and she was waiting at the other. So we never met. And as we never met, we never walked together. But then you see there is such a thing as repentance. Of discovering you made a mistake and saying I'll never do that again. And we met at the right park gate next time. And we've gone on meeting ever since. And she's here tonight. Good. Oh yes, but two can't be, can't walk together except they are met. You cannot have fellowship if you deny this. It's a travesty of it, friends. Fellowship comes out of this. Don't invent your fellowship first and discover your need of Christ afterwards. Here is the basis of where you meet. And then the next thing is, I will commune with thee. And that's a rich word. It emphasizes again fellowship. But I'm going to degrade it a bit. I'm going to remind you and myself that there are 814 references in the Old Testament where this word translated commune is just speaking. It isn't the word commune at all. It's just plain, common or garden speaking. But oh, how wonderful that you and I can go into the presence of God and we haven't got to commune with him. Oh, that makes you think you've shut your eyes and put your hands together, or there do what. You can speak to him, friends. Speak to him. Let's get one passage which is a good illustration. Numbers, the eighth, the uh, seventh chapter, and the eighty-ninth verse. Numbers seven, eighty-nine. <laughs> And when Moses was gone into the tabernacle of the congregation to speak with him. There's your word. Commune. Then he heard the voice of one speaking unto him from off the mercy seat. You see what happens? You go in to speak with God and you find he'll speak with you. That's of isn't it? From off the mercy seat that was upon the Ark of Testimony from between the two cherubim. And he spake unto him. Who? There's nobody can say. Who's the he and who's the him? Well, it doesn't matter, friends. He spake unto him. Or he spake unto him. That's it. This is the word that gives us the oracle in the book of Samuel. This word, speak. This is the, the note that Paul strikes when he wrote his epistle to the Hebrews. God hath spoken. Once by the prophets, now by his Son. Once by the angels, now by the Lord. Once on Mount Sinai, now in glory. spoken. Isn't it good that we've got a word that God has spoken? And is it good to know it comes from the very heart and centre of this place of worship? Every time we open this book, let us forget merely its paper and print. Let us begin to remember that that book would never have been written and printed and read by us if there'd been no mercy seat. It comes from there. It's a part of redeeming love. Not needed to deliver us from our bondage, but to give us a pillar of cloud and fire by day or night. Here it is for us. Not seen by the eye of the flesh, but definitely seen by the eye of faith. Now, I knew my time was going to run out pretty quickly before I got to it. Isaiah 53. What a miracle I thought of it, isn't it? Isaiah 53. Just two verses to do with meeting God or other things. Meeting. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath made to meet On him, the iniquity of us all. That's the meeting place of my sin. Now that's not all. That's only the first. That's the first thing. Last verse in Isaiah 53. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. This is the conqueror now. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many. And he made a meeting place for the transgressors. Same word. Same word. Used here twice and used in the tabernacle. So already the prophets were telling the people that tabernacle, a meeting place is a type and a shadow of that meeting place. And the double one. First, he made to meet on that devoted head the iniquity of us all. And then the way was opened but a meeting place for those who had been, by nature, transgressors. So far then, the tabernacle and the first item of its furniture. I hope you don't say to yourself, well, what a long time it's going to be before we get right through all this furniture. Don't you think it's worth it, friends? Don't you think it's really valuable to see how God has gone out of his way to teach us by sign and symbol so that when we've seen the lessons there we can come back to the New Testament and say, oh, blessed be God, he fulfilled it all and more than ever I could see. So, once more, till next week, God willing, when we pick up our thread and carry it another stage further.